is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, March 20, 2021. Boy, did this show come together. We had a pretty impressive blizzard. We needed the moisture. And now we enter spring. I love this time of year. March is upon us, which means basketball. If you're like me, and I know I am, you love hope. Mark Randall played in the NBA. He worked for the Nuggets a long time after he played for them. Now he's the head of Denver Public School Sports. And the George Washington Patriots are back where they belong in the championship game. Mark Randall, Cherry Creek Class of 86, visits with me, GW Class of 74, in a very special interview that comes up first. Then we go to another hoopster, Alan Hill my longtime friend from CU Law School. Before that, we tangled on the basketball court. He is one of Colorado's best water lawyers. And then we have Dave Gunders, our troubadour. He gives us a song called All That Water with a special story behind it. This is a special show called March Moisture. Enjoy. Gosh, this is exciting. When I grow up, I want to be just like this guy or something approximate, you know, tall, good looking, a studded basketball, all American. He went to Kansas. He got drafted by the Chicago Bulls. Yeah, those Chicago Bulls. Everything about this guy I've admired. And after his great basketball life, now he's still in the game, but in a different way. Everything I admired, but for the fact he went to Cherry Creek High School. Because I went to George Washington, and we thought, wow, those guys out there, they're rich and spoiled. And now I have kids, and one of them is about to graduate. God willing, I'll get to witness it this spring. And he goes to Cherry Creek, and I realized that I was right. All those kids are rich and spoiled. (laughs) Yep. Hey, Mark Randall. Well, I'm not going to say all of them. No. I I appreciate that, Craig. It's a joke. And I appreciate your introduction. But I do have to correct that I did go to Cherry Creek, but I, by no way, was my family in poverty. But my parents were working several jobs to be able to make sure that we had what we needed. So I I can't say that I was, uh, and I'm not saying Cherry Creek kids are that way, but I, I was definitely not a silver spoon kid. Let's put it that way. That's interesting. I'd like to hear the Mark Randall story because I've admired your career, really. Just the aspiration to make it that far in basketball. I also wanted to grow up to be as tall as you. How tall are you, Mark Randall? Actually, I got a funny story about that. I've been 6'8 since I was a sophomore at Cherry Creek. I literally grew six inches in between my freshman and sophomore year during that summer. So 6'8 as a sophomore... You know, I've been measured countless times because basketball turned out to be my profession. 
recently here in the last two years because of the wear and tear on my body, I wound up having both my hips replaced. And while in there being for pre-surgery and, and talking to the doctors, they asked me about height and weight and all that stuff that they asked everybody. And I told them six to eight and they said, well, would you mind actually measuring over here on the wall? And I said, no problem. I mean, I've been six, eight for 35 years of my life. And I got over there, the lady that was measuring me, maybe five feet. So she had to grab a step stool, got up there. She said, um, well, you're not going to believe this, but I got you at six, nine. And I looked at her and I said, you're right. I don't believe you. And we went around the corner. I said, let's take that measurement again somewhere else. She said, no problem. We did that. She called over a couple of people. They verified it. Apparently, Craig, you grow later in life. So I guess I'm 6'9 now. Oh, but my God. I thought the story was going to go the other direction. No, it blows my mind, and I'll tell you why. It goes back to my basketball playing days. When I was at Cherry Creek, they listed me at 6'9", you know, which they commonly do with kids. They'll fudge an inch or whatever. Then I got to Kansas. Again, they kept me at 6'9", which I always felt like I was actually closer to 6'7". And then once I got to the, was fortunate enough to get to the NBA, I remember a first, you know, early in my career, my first year, my first season, because that's when Magic Johnson announced he had HIV. He was my childhood hero that I grew up watching and loved watching him play the game. And then Larry Bird. So I get to stand next to those guys. And those guys are a legit 6'9". And I'm literally looking up to those guys. So the point to all that is that I have no idea how I got to be 6'9". And I still don't believe it. Now you are doing some major name dropping. And I love it. But let me tell you my height story. First of all, let me ask you when you were 6'8 as a sophomore. Because I was 6'5 as a sophomore. 6'5" like 135 and then 155 and then 160. I, I started gaining weight, but I was still pretty skinny. Were you a skinny, tall guy or thick? I was, and I laugh when I see because clips will come up every now and then, and my dad was a huge supporter, so he was filming every game. And I was 6'8", 185, so that's actually 100 pounds ago. Wow, yeah, that's what happens. What year did you graduate Creek? 1986. So you're 12 years behind me. Let me tell you what you have coming because I don't know how you... I don't know if I want to hear it, Craig. Well, I'm just saying that I didn't come from a tall family. And for me to grow as tall as I did, and it was during junior high school at Hill, I just started growing and that made basketball a lot more attractive. I love this sport. I wanted to be really tall, as tall as I could be. And I hit 6'5 as a sophomore, but I stopped there. And I thought that's good because growing up, I thought realistically, if I could be 6'4, that would be a really yeah. cool height. And then sure. now that I'm getting older, I said, well, I'm 6'5 my whole life, just like you've been your size. Yep. And I said, okay, if I lose an inch, I'll be 6'4. That's pretty cool. And then Somehow I went straight from 6'5 to 6'3. Now, that was a couple surgeries ago for me, but that's the normal yeah, yeah. direction of people. I've never heard about somebody growing late in life. 
Yeah, not at the, because I literally had, uh, when I had my two hip surgeries, I was 51 because I had them within the same year. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. You know, I knew about, you know, my parents told me about when you hit 50, this is going to go wrong and things are going to be tougher here and tougher there. And they were, they were right on with that. But the whole thing, I'm 50 and I looked at her and I said, you tell me I'm still growing? This is before they even got to my hips. And when they got to my hips, one was a little bit off. And so the surgeon actually uh, corrected it and made me even, nice. so to speak. And <laughs> But I'm still, I'm, let's just put it this way. I'm sticking with 6'8". I, I still don't believe the 6'9 thing. Here's the thing about Mark Randall. Not only an extraordinary basketball player, he's a scratch golfer. Another reason I want to be Mark Randall when I grow up. And I also thought 6'8". I want to be 6'8". Because then I think I could star in Division One basketball. At 6'5", I had to go play Division Three basketball, which was great. I loved it. And I want to ask you, you a bunch of questions, but let's not leave the height issue. How tall do you want to grow to be? That's being selfish because, again, it's going to go back to my basketball career because that's obviously been a big part of my life. But, you know, being 6'8", in Colorado high school basketball, that's a big thing because you just, we very rarely have the 6'9", 6'10", you know, seven footers. And when they come through, you know, they really stand out. But then once, you know, how the the height, I'm not going to say it hurt me because I was actually able to use it to my advantage at Kansas. Because when I got to Kansas, we didn't have the seven footers like they have, seems like they have the endless supply now. But a couple of my years that I was there, we didn't have the taller guys, so I had to play out of position at center. And so I was able to take advantage of that because you know, I'm playing against guys like Shaquille O'Neal and there was a big seven-footer, Johnny Pittman at Oklahoma State and Rich King at Nebraska. And I would just gas those guys. I'd just outrun them and I'd get layup after layup after layup. Defensively, wasn't giving up a whole lot. You know, Shaq wasn't the monster he was once he got to the NBA and was weighing about 350 when he was playing. But, you know, so I was able to use it to my advantage. Now, going back, I got a little off tangent there, but going back to your question, you know, it would have, it would have been nice to be seven foot just because seven footers always had a place. You know, I was an in-betweener at the NBA level at six, eight. I was in between the small forward and power forward position. I wasn't flight of foot side to side. So that didn't help me with when I was out there guarding the three position. I handled myself fine at four, but I was still giving up some size. But if I was seven foot, it's not really a joke. It's actually a fact. If you can walk and chew gum, you're going to play on a team. And if you can somehow average three points and two rebounds a game, you're going to get paid about $5 million a year. So, but with your skills, Mark Randall, if you were seven foot, you would be in the Hall of Fame, don't you think? Well, I'm not going to go that far, Craig, but it, it definitely would have taken me, I believe, in my heart, and I appreciate your comments, that I believe it would have helped me get to a different level because I would have been playing a true position. I do feel like I had the skill to be able to play with my back to the basket because that's what I did the entire time at Kansas for the most part. But it also, I feel like, and I'm not going to compare myself, so I don't want anybody, you know, rolling their eyes when I say it, but I could envision myself playing a Jokic type of game oh, where yes. you're, you're handling the ball more, 
you know, you can step out, you can hit the shot from outside, but you can still, and I love to pass the basketball. That's why, you know, I brought up Magic Johnson. That's what I loved about Magic is he didn't really care if he scored. He got more enjoyment, it seemed like, when he passed the ball to his teammates, and that's the way I always envisioned playing the game. All right, let's not bury one of the leads. Nikola Jokic, <laughs> this guy, I'd like to see him win MVP. In fact, I have an ad on my podcast, jokerformvp.com. They're cool t-shirts. Mark Randall, I'm going to send you a double XL that's as big as they get. Are you down with the prospect of the Joker for MVP? Should it happen? Is it possible? Well, there's two questions there. Is it possible? You betcha it's possible. Would I like to see it happen, and do I believe it can happen? Absolutely. Do I think it's going to happen? Unfortunately, in my heart, I don't believe it's going to happen, and that's because of media bias, because we're in a smaller market, whatever it might be. I was, you know, obviously this is a fun conversation, and a lot of people like to talk about it in the, in the basketball circles. And he's so entertaining to watch. He's definitely the MVP of our team. But when I, you know, because I, I have to be honest, I don't watch a whole lot of NBA basketball right now because it really turns me off. I can't stand watching these guys come down and three guys in their face and firing up from three. And, you know, the dunk is, is fun to watch, but it's not a big part of the game to me. And, and it, these kids are so athletic and, they're flying all over the place and blah, blah, blah. But I just don't believe this generation has good basketball instincts. I understand that. But the Joker, tell me you like watching the Joker. Oh, no, no, no question. And that's the question that everybody likes to throw out there is, who would you pay to watch in the NBA? And I would definitely pay to watch him. Unfortunately, he's about the only guy. But going back to your question with the NBA, you know, I, I still love sports. My big sport, I love watching golf. I'm a baseball guy. My sport, I love hockey. But when I'm cruising through the TV or whatever, I just sent a screenshot the other day of two pretty prominent basketball players, and they had a listing of their top five candidates for MVP this year. And this was just literally a week ago, and Joker wasn't even on it. I was pulled in, and I was like, I got to listen to this, even though I didn't want to, because the two players I didn't really even care for. And I'm sitting there listening to them, and in a five-minute segment, they never mentioned Jokic once. No. So to answer your question, Craig, I just don't think he's going to garner the votes to be able to make that happen. And what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to make a deep run into the playoffs sometime win the championship, and whether that's going to happen or not, you know, that's yet to be seen. It could happen. And the Joker is just a thrill for me to watch. You played with your back to the basket. We both enjoy classic post moves. This guy's got tricks that yeah. you and I never even thought of. And but the bottom line is he's seven foot, and he's almost averaging a triple-double. I mean, that's insane. Just that. I don't care who you're playing against. If it's the old NBA, it's the new NBA, whatever it is, the dude, he's good offensively, but he's looking out for his teammates. He makes everybody on the court better. To me, that's your MVP. And I don't care if you're the winning team and you're the leading team or whatever. You have to have that under consideration. But unfortunately, I believe bias 
jumps in and people are like, well, they have to be one of the NBA title contenders. And, you know, with Denver starting off, they had the huge expectations this year, and then they fell off early. You know, they had issues again, like everybody does, with injuries and some COVID stuff and all that. Now they seem to be gaining form, which is when you want to be gaining form. But now all of a sudden, Jokic is behind in all this MVP talk, which, again, I witnessed it firsthand a week ago. Now, how many years were you part of the Nuggets organization? With playing and with working in the community relations department and then doing things in the community on their behalf as a former player, I believe I figured it to be 23, 23 or 24, I can't remember. And tell everybody what your new job is. So my new job, I left Crocky Sports, I think it's five years ago now. And two years, I was still doing some ambassador things with the Nuggets out in the community. And then I actually uh, was working with a buddy of mine, framing basements, framing homes and stuff. And absolutely love that because that's always been something I've enjoyed. Well, a year and a half ago, I was approached by a good friend of mine, John Andrew. John and I are the same age, and he played at John F. Kennedy back when I was at Cherry Creek. And we actually played against each other. Well, anyways, he and I had been friends for many years, and he had given me a heads up. And he and I talked, and he says, I really think you need to consider being an athletic director. And I was like, wow, I'd never really thought about that. But the idea definitely intrigued me. So I actually started the process and actually interviewed with a couple of schools. And because of in Denver Public Schools, our athletic directors at our respective schools are all assistant principals first and then athletic directors second. Well, I don't have an AP license. I'm not able to be able to do that. I'm not certified. So the two places that I interviewed with, they said, you know, probably not a good time right now, blah, blah, blah. And and I respected that. Well, John came back to me the June of 19, and he said, hey, we've got one of the guys in our office is moving on to Chassa, and I think this position would be absolutely ideal for you. So I went through the interview process and uh, was able to get the job. So long story, I know there, but now what I am doing is I'm the manager for high school athletics for Denver Public Schools. We oversee 13 high schools. We support 13 high schools and ADs and coaches and and teams. Absolutely love my job. My daily activities consist of, because we're in the older high schools in Colorado, we don't have the facilities. We don't have the field space. So, you know, we have to go to Denver Parks and Rec to be able to apply for permits to be able to use City Park or Denver Parks, that's part of my job. I also do scheduling for most of our sports. I do the league schedules for most of them, get those to our school, and then they build around them with their non-league schedules. Right now, we're in the process of voting on our all-city, our all-league team for both the boys and girls basketball teams. I'm handling that. Normally, that's something that's a process that we do in person, but with COVID, We could do it by Zoom, but to be able to get everybody together on one call always proves to be tough. doesn't matter where you're at. And so we're doing this, unfortunately, over email right now. So You are giving me goosebumps, Mark Randall, and let me tell you why. We got a lot going, Craig, and I'm so excited about it. 
I have to stop you here because my heart is pumping. Wow, what a great job you have. And this voting for all city consumed me in 1974 as I battled for the GW Patriots. And I was so, my greatest day maybe of my life is when Bill Weimer came and gave me the ribbon and said, you're unanimous first team of all city in Denver. I want that on my tombstone. So what a big deal. I just didn't, you know how impactful your decision making is right now? It is, and it's a unique process in the first place, and you're never going to make everybody happy, and that's the one thing about my job that I was told you're going to have to learn real quick, and I knew it coming in, is that you know, you're know you not always going to make everybody happy. People are going to complain about this. They're going to complain about that. It doesn't matter. If you're in the Cherry Creek schools, Aurora, Jeffco, Denver, it doesn't matter. Everybody's going to have their own opinions of how things should handle, how things should come out. You know, that's just part of the job. But what I love about my job is I have an excellent mix of I'm behind the desk. I actually enjoy doing logistical work. But then I get to go out, and and it's been tough for the last year and a half because I'm still learning the ropes and, you know, the processes and the protocols and how we handle this and that and all of that. But now that I'm kind of in a groove, I'm going to be out at more games than I have been in the past and build the relationships with the coaches and the ADs. And that's what excites me. And before we leave all cities, so is the process that every coach in the league gets a vote? Do you get a vote too? I do not get to vote because I'm an administrator, but the coaches, every head coach gets to vote. Right. That was my understanding. And it must go back years. And do you have access to the record books there? Cause you can look it up. 1974. Oh, well, now that you told me that, I'm going to look. Okay. That's, that's something uh, John Andrew let me in on when we were talking yesterday. He Because it's funny you said that because he said the year that in 86 when we graduated, he too was a unanimous pick in Denver Public Schools. So that's pretty rare. Let's just put it this way. I'm not really divulging anything here, but my time here and the two times doing the selection process, we have yet to have a unanimous pick. So pretty special when it happens. Well, you didn't see me play, but that's okay. Anyway, here's the thing, Mark Randall. I'm so proud of this big job you have, and I thought about you last night. We're recording on Friday, and dang, in this connected world, it's so hard to get the results. I'm coming to you for news, and what had to be your mixed emotions, the final four in the state tournament, I was privileged to participate in 73 and 74, there's March Madness. But two of the semifinalists was Mark's alma mater, Cherry Creek, and my alma yep. mater, GW. It looked like maybe they were destined to meet in the finals. Tell everybody what happened Thursday night. Well, and actually, I have a really good friend that he's leaving town permanently. So I had only time we were going to be able to go out and have dinner was last night. So I wasn't going to be able to check my phone and be on all that. But when I did get off my phone, I learned that your alma mater, one of our schools, George Washington, they beat Rangeview. Rangeview, who had a three-season winning streak going, and they had to play them at Rangeview somehow. How did you let that happen, Mark Randall? Well, that's not happening. That was Chas's decision. They had made that clear at the start of the season that the higher seed was going to host throughout the playoffs. 
That makes sense. GW, the Cinderella story, once again, has any school ever been to more state tournaments? Not always winning, but always yeah. competitive. Tell everybody about sure. that great victory for your Denver Public Schools last night. You bet. Reggie does a great job with those guys, and we got Keith in over there that does a great job. The girls had a great season this year. They were our league champs, and... You know, we've got a lot of great coaches, and we've got a lot of great kids, and, and obviously you know. I wish more people would know, but, you know, we have an excellent, incredible tradition in DPS schools, especially with, with basketball. And so to have George Washington advance to the final, and then on the other side, Creek lost in overtime. I guess it was a putback or tip-in from my understanding. So they wound up losing so that – and I was really pulling for the GW-Creek matchup. And it was because I really wanted GW to take out Creek. I'm, I'm DPS through and through now. So I was hoping it was going to get there. You know, I'm happy for Creek because they have a good program going over there. And, and one of my best friends actually coaches over there. And he's always going to be one of my best friends. So obviously I'm pulling for him. But I, I wanted to taste that GW over Creek. Because my team, 86, we lost to GW. We love Cherry Creek, but we just love George Washington more, right? It, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm DPS through and through now, baby. I love it. I love it, too. But what about your old employer, the Nuggets, and the NBA? I just sense you have some issues. No, it's not issues. I just, I'm not enamored with the game of basketball, period, right now. And it starts to me, and this is my opinion, just like we talked about. I've got my opinions, and people have their own is that the game, and this isn't just a, a, people want to say, well, you're just a crotchety old man now that, you know, the game's passed you by, whatever. This is the evolution of the game. Well, if this is the evolution of the game, I don't like it. The kids, they are without, I will say, they're more athletic than we were as a whole back in the day, but they just don't play the game the way I believe it should be played. And I think it's disrespectful to the game the way it's played right now. Because the big man has been all but pushed out of the game. You know, yes, we talk about Jokic, and he'll go in, and he's good at with the back to the basket, but he is a, a rarity. And so I'm more of a guy that the game's in out, and guards are going to get a heck of a lot better shots and more open shots and, you know, layups from outside, like I like to call them. They can check the wind if they have a guy inside, like Jokic, that, you know, commands respect. He commands a double team, and then you throw it out, and you're wide open, and you can knock down shots. But this generation, man, you know, I, I've got example after example. Where I'll just turn on a game, whether it's college or the pro level. They'll come down on three-on-one. And in my mind, I've been taught, it's been burnt into my mind, make the extra pass, get the layup. But, man, these guys, three-on-one, almost Every time now, they'll just jack it up from a three. And I'm just like, what is that? If that's what the games become, I'm not going to follow it. I'm not going to be a supporter, and I'm not going to be excited about it. Yeah, I bet the coach at George and the winning teams yank guys out of the game. I think George only had one three-pointer, and they beat Rangeview in an incredible win. I've been able to watch some of the playoff games. I've watched George play a couple times. When George is at their best, they are passing. They're, they're, all they're doing is making the easy pass. 
And that's what drives me crazy is these guys, they have to make the alley-oop pass and they have to make the pass behind their back and whatever. Hey, if it connects, great. It's a great pass. If it doesn't connect, which in my mind, most of the time it doesn't, that's a bad pass. And you're not nicking the easy pass. And that's when George is at their best. The game I got to see, they played against Heritage at their own place. And Heritage, very disciplined team. They were great. They were running their offense. They were forcing GW to play D, which they did. And it was a tight game the whole time. Well, then when it finally broke open in the fourth quarter is when GW spread out Heritage. And they actually just, they just if, if one of their teammates was open, they made the pass. And then if another teammate was open, they made the pass. And they were getting layups and dunks, and they pulled away, and they won the game. To me, Craig, the, the game's not that hard, but these kids today are making it hard. I played for legendary coach Bill Weimer, and you had to pass the ball four or five times. And the beauty of yeah. this run by GW is when we were ranked number one, in 1973, we got knocked out at the Coliseum by Regis. So this redemption tour, it's kind of like the Broncos. The Patriots knocked out Regis, and now they're going to the finals. It's just great. They've been there so many times. They've won it a few times. But, Mark, sure. isn't the beauty of basketball that with all these alley-oopsters and People jacking threes, and the three-point game has changed everything. But the beauty of basketball is, in the end, it's the better team that wins. And you know it. You were with the Chicago Bulls, and you've already invoked the names of Magic and Larry Bird. And I assume you're arguing they played the game the right way, as did Michael Jordan. You knew the man. Tell everybody your thoughts about that era of basketball. Well, I'll get to that real quick, but the one point I want to make about, and you're exactly right, Craig, is that, so I grew up watching guys like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I grew up watching guys like, you know, Jordan and his, when he first came into the league, Magic Bird in their prime, Dr. J and, you know, Michael Cooper and Rambis and those guys. So when I was getting ready to go in the NBA, I could, you know, because I felt like my skill set would lend good to a Celtic team or a 76er team as just a good role player. Yeah, I could score in high school and, you know, because I was bigger than all the kids. And then I got to Kansas and I told you I had to play with my back to the basket. So I was kind of out of position there. So I had to adjust my game there, blah, blah, blah. Well, then all of a sudden, as I get to the NBA, it's not coincidence. And I love when people try to, to say different. Money changed the game. Because all of a sudden you have a bunch of guys, the contracts when I first came into the NBA were getting ridiculous. You know, we're talking about five to seven million dollars a year for these guys. And that's laughable now because there's guys making 35, 40 million dollars a year. But these guys are making a ton of money. And what they're doing is they're going for their contract. They're not going to play the game. They just want to make sure they get the paper. Now, to your point, you know, I got to play with a team in the Chicago Bulls. That happens to be, you know, I get drafted by them. I'm going to play with Jordan and Pippen and Horace Grant and John Paxson and all these guys that they play together. And guess what happens? When you play together, you make the easy pass. Does it help that you got Michael Jordan on your team? Of course. Does it help that you got Scottie Pippen on your team? Of course. But you play together as a team, 
good things happen and you win championships. And that's what they did. And it's not a coincidence. Then all of a sudden you have a team like the Spurs come in to play. Popovich, he teaches the team game. He loves the team game. Nobody's above one another on the team, whether you're the first guy or you're the 15th guy on the bench. And guess what? You win games. It's not rocket science. You're not going to have, you know, and this isn't a slam on Carmelo Anthony or Harden or whatever. How many championships do these guys have now? And it's just because they're very skilled offensively. But to me, they do not make the guys around them better. They don't make the extra pass. When you have guys like that on your team, then in the locker room, that causes dissension. I don't care what anybody says. I've witnessed it. When I went to the Timberwolves, I got let go from the Bulls. I went from the penthouse to the outhouse, more or less. So I go to the Minnesota Timber Puppies, as I call them because we weren't even Wolves by that time. And I'm playing with guys like Pooh Richardson and Tony Campbell. Again, very talented players, but they were all for them. It was all about them. I'll tell you a brief story. So Tony Campbell came from the Lakers. He was successful there. They won some championships. And then so he's our top guy when I'm with the Timberwolves, and this is in 1991, 92 season when I first came in. So... The way I play the game is that, you know, I'm I'm cutting and moving. I'm trying to make it tough for my guy to guard me, and I'm cutting to the baskets because I want layups. And so Tony was a post-up player. And, you know, he was only about 6'7", but he was skilled. So you throw it into Tony, and, you know, I'd tie my cuts because Tony would command a double team. He was good enough to score. Well, then I'd make my cut behind my man, be standing there wide open. Tony wouldn't see me because he's doing whatever he's doing to try to score. And then on top of it, he's cussing me out in the timeout in the huddle because, Mark, you're cutting in there. You're taking up my space to be able to make my move. And I'm like, Tony, are you serious? You got two guys on you. What the hell are you going to do with two guys on you? And I don't have anybody on me because my guy left me to go double team you. Guess who's open? And so that's kind of. The point of that whole thing is is that at that point in time when I came into the NBA, contracts were going up, guys were looking for theirs, and because of it, it became a more selfish game. Mm. Me, 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 me. And it got away from, because the guys, you can talk till you're blue in the face about the guys back in the generation of Dr. J and whatever, you know, the money they made back then, I mean, they were lucky if they got a $150,000 contract. And that's just a pittance to what these stars are making now. Well, thank God you got a little piece of it. And I don't like that guy, Tony. I hated to play with ball hogs like that. And you brought up the guy that everybody in Denver will remember, and he's still in the league, Carmelo Anthony. And he's a bridge to my late father, who is my, you know, dearest coach and teacher. But my dad was around long enough to see Carmelo and he didn't like the way he played the game because he held the ball and it was all about Carmelo as he proved in Denver. I need to jump in here, Craig, real quick. And the people listening have to understand, as a person, I loved Carmelo because I was a coach under Jeff Bezdelic when Carmelo was with us. So I was with him every day, working with him every day. So please understand, if there's three guys in the world that I want to take a last-second shot to win us a game, Carmelo's one of those guys. Don't get me wrong. 
He's unbelievably talented. You know, there's not a lot of guys in my lifetime that I've seen that have that kind of skill and can get off a shot in a pressure situation like Carmelo. Now, the other intangibles about the game, I can't gush about those. And that's what I'm saying is that when you have guys like that, I'm not just trying to call out Carmelo and Harden and these guys, but when you have guys that command the ball that much, that breaks down everything. Like my example with Tony Campbell. If you have a guy like Tony Campbell or Carmelo that's posting up, getting ready to make their move, then you have four guys basically standing around doing nothing. Why are you going to cut? Why would I cut in there? I'm not going to get the ball. So just stand. And that kills the game. And that's, you know, I can talk about it. You know, that's what my dad my would now. say. Yeah, Carmelo's clutch and he's got mad skills. But let's talk about dads. Was your dad a big influence? We never quite got back to that. And I want to, Mark, because you're not a silver yep. spoon kid, even though you went to Cherry Creek. Tell everybody about yep. your upbringing. So originally I'm from Minnesota. I moved here when we were five, but I consider Colorado my home. Matter of fact, if I would have lived, if we would have lived two blocks further to the west, I would have gone to Arapahoe High School rather than Cherry Creek. So I was on the outlying neighborhoods on the border to be able to go to Cherry Creek. My parents, both Minnesotans, uh, you know, Midwestern, dad was in real estate, a mom, because my parents divorced, I think I was 10 at the time, and they divorced, kept it amicable. We still spent time together on holidays and so that was a great thing for us as kids. But when dad moved out, mom had to work a couple extra jobs. Uh, I have me, my brother, who's 11 months younger than myself. I have a sister who's five years younger than me. But with my brother and I alone, I mean, just for us, for her to feed us was ridiculous. So she busted her ass and she did what she could. And we had a great childhood, I believe. As we've talked about, I went to Cherry Creek. I was fortunate. I was nationally recruited. Uh, without sounding like an idiot and a cocky guy, I was very fortunate that I got nationally recruited and I heard from most major universities. Uh, my final three choices were Arizona, and then my runner-up was Duke, and then I wound up going to Kansas and went to Kansas, played for Larry Brown for two years. We won the national championship my sophomore year under with Danny Manning and but I took a red shirt that year because I didn't feel like I was going to play a whole lot. That kicked me to my fifth year and uh, kicked me to a fifth year. And the fifth year was in 1991, and we lost to Duke, ironically, in the national championship game against uh, Christian Leitner, Bobby Hurley, Grant Hill, and those guys. The shot? Oh, that happened earlier in the tournament when Leitner made that shot. Yeah, that actually, I think that was the following year against Kentucky. Okay. I think that was 92. But growing up, I loved hockey. Me and my friends played street hockey. We'd build nets out of two-by-fours and chicken wire because we couldn't afford to go out and buy some other stuff. And I used to cut class every now and then to go over to South Suburban Ice Arena. This is going to age me really well, is that I'd go watch a Colorado Rockies hockey team practice. And then when practice was over, then I'd stand in the middle of them as they're coming off the ice and asked if I could get their stick and some of the greatest memories of my life because I got guys like Joel Quinville and, and and all those guys, they were great. You know, they'd, they'd say, here you go, kid. And so we'd, I'd have uh, brand new hockey sticks and played a little soccer. But in my first love, 
I'm often asked, what's my biggest regret in life? And in my sports life, I gave up baseball uh, my freshman year at Cherry Creek. Uh, went in after the first game after going four for five against Aurora Central. And uh, I was in tears and told the coach at the time, I said, you know, I got to give it up because I'm getting serious about basketball. And uh, the rest is history on that. You know, that's interesting because I had the pleasure of playing basketball and baseball. And I'd always make that awesome. transition. And then I played on the golf team because I was really too intelligent to be on the football team. No offense to those guys. And I just got to get back to Cherry Creek because they thought they were going to win the championship. And to me, that would have been sort of a sacrilege because they were a bunch of football players. You and I know the difference between basketball and football. And for football players to dominate your sport, wouldn't that have been a little bit of an affront? Well, no, I'm not going to take it that way. I'm, I'm just happy the kids get to play. I mean, that's with the role that I hold now with DPS, and I don't care where it is, I'm just happy we were able to get these kids out and play. Now, if they're football players playing basketball, you know, you, you're talking about Cherry Creek. You're talking about a school that has nearly 4,000 kids. But if those are the kids that are going to be dual sport athletes, I'm not going to take that away from them. No, I'm not either. But I'm just happy that it hoopsters. But, but you know that tension that sometimes exists. But I know another sport you love and you excel at. And to do the definitive Mark Randall interview, and that's what we're doing here. And we have all the time in the world. But I want to get to golf because you said you'd love to watch it. So do I. People are yep. thinking about it at Tiger Woods, wherever you want to go with the world of golf. When did you get into it? And I've been into it since I was like age eight at Twilight, the par three course. If you yep. remember that? So I worked there I as do. a little kid and I just loved golf and you and I have golfed together, but you are the great yeah. golfer and tell us when you got into it. That's changed, but we'll get to that. So I started about the same age you did about age eight. Uh, I was here in Colorado. If people are familiar with the golf world, Inverness, sure. because I lived here on the south end of town. If people can picture this, I played Inverness when it first opened, and the trees were just little saplings. I was taller than all the trees around the course, and the big hotel was not even, that wasn't even a thought yet. They were still in trailers for the uh, clubhouse. So that's how long... I go. I thought you had no silver spoon. That never was free. It no. cost some money. How did you get on? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it was back then. It wasn't, you know, you know, Inverness, I know it's a private club now, and they've got all kinds of members or whatever, but it wasn't a ton back there. And it was one of those things where my parents would just drop me off. You know, I learned the game from guys like uh, Tom Babb and Ron Vlasic and wow. Ken Krieger, who's still, I believe, up in Wyoming. Do you remember Bob Stallman, who was the pro at Inverness? Oh, of course I do. I do. That's why I played there, because he'd let me on gratis quite often, because we had played so many rounds together in college golf when he competed for DU and I competed for CC. I loved that guy. Oh, yeah. No, I remember Bob well. And, and that's, you know, playing out there and being around those guys, it was just, uh, it's one of my great memories of growing up. And I stuck with the game, well, up until high school. Once I got to high school, I became kind of a hothead and I was throwing clubs and I kind of put myself in a timeout. And I was like, all right, this isn't any good. 
Well, then I get to Kansas, and I got some really good courses there in Lawrence. We were able to go out and play for reduced fees, and so I took advantage of that and uh, and went out there and played, and I fell back in love with the game, and I've been playing it ever since. And you brought it up at the start. You know, I've gotten to a scratch at one point. I was very fortunate that the Colorado Open allowed me an exemption back in 2002 when they were still playing it up in the mountains up at Sonnenelp. But my game's kind of deteriorated over the years. I, I'm at a five, and I'm not crying about that because I know that's still a low number. But for someone who was used to shooting, you know, 72, 73, and now I'm lucky if I break 80, you know, it's, it's a shot to the ego. But it's also I've got a job that I love, and it's time-consuming, and I can't get out as much as I used to, and that's fine. You know, I still enjoy it when I get to get out and play. And, and i got to tell the story because we're on it, but – Craig, you and I got to play, if you remember it, it was the Mile High Sports Challenge. I was a member of the media at that time with Altitude, and you and I got to play against each other at City Park, and you crushed me in nine holes, and I had to get out of there after that. So That is one of my greatest victories, thank you. But I took you to my home course, and you were good to come there. City Park. Yeah. The yeah, old City Park. I learned real quick. Exactly. I learned real quick, you better keep the ball under the hole or you're done. Yes, there was some local knowledge there. Now it's a new course. I haven't played there, but I'm going to play in a big Colorado Hawks tournament because it's hoop related and City Park. I love it out there. And Inverness, what a great spot. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have you on. You fill out my front court of guests. You want to know who else I've had on? Who else? Bill Walton nice. and Spencer Haywood. That's awesome. You guys are my starting front court. I've had the privilege of meeting both of them, so that's awesome. It's March Madness, and I, I can't thank you enough and what memories you have. But still, you went so far in the basketball world, and I admire it on all levels, coaching, execution, team play. To me, a guy like Michael Jordan or Larry Bird or Magic Johnson, they are geniuses, not just athletically, but they have a mental faculty that great basketball players like the Joker have that is really right. touched by genius. Wouldn't you agree? I agree. It's a love for the game, and it's shown through the way you play the game. And that's not to take away from those guys that like to sit out there and bomb from three and dunk, dunk, dunk. But when you're involving your entire team and you love doing it, to me, that's a basketball player. And that's what Joker is. Right. You have to be smart. And one smart thing about a big man, and I'm just drawn to this subject, but some of my best pals throughout my life have been point guards who got me the ball because I could never dribble the ball up. I relied on other people to get me the ball. Who are those special passers to you? that you will always remember. And I bet they've remained good friends to you. Well, no, they are. And that's, yeah, the, the big guys always liked it, the, the guys that get them the ball. But you touched on it a little bit. My dad was a big influence in my life growing up. Um, he loved the game. He played the game back in Minnesota. And then I had a, a man named Sam Battaglia, who unfortunately passed away about, it's been about seven or eight years ago. And he was really a big influence in my life taught me the game, taught me the value of playing a team game, passing and all that stuff.
But in terms of players, yeah, you never forget your point guards that pass the ball. And I'm not going to say to me or whatever. I just like playing with guys that see the whole court. Again, you've heard me rant about it. But I like the guys that make the easy pass. You know, they they pass the ball up ahead. They're in transition. One of their teammates is wide open. You know, and this is when I'm teaching the game to kids. I'm like, what happens if I pass the ball to him up on the left wing because he's wide open? And they're like, they look at me like I got three eyes. And I'm like, what happens? The defense is going to go to them, right? Because he's unguarded. He's got the ball. So they're going to go to them. Well, when they go to them, most of the time they're going to miscommunicate on defense. I'm going to get a shot. If I cut to the basket, I'm going to get a layup. But this is the IQ I'm talking about with basketball that I just don't see it consistently in the game right now. While you're down a little on basketball, you and I like watching golf. We have a similar lives, but you've got a big job. What a responsibility. And now GW in the state finals, as it should be with Mark Randall rooting them on. I, I mean, what a big job you have, Mark Randall. Thanks for taking time out. Thanks for giving us the great news about GW and your life. Way to go, man. Proud of you. Appreciate you, Craig, and thanks for uh, the honor of coming on your show. It's my privilege. Thank you, Mark Randall. Take care, buddy. If I had to guess, that's one of the biggest topics that must come up in your practice. How can I provide for my kid's education, my grandchild's education. And aren't there some tax benefits to doing it certain ways, not others? There can be. Depending on how you structure a trust, you can get a tax break on your taxes now. You can get a tax break on any estate tax in the future. So let's say that Donald Sturm has $2 billion, which I don't know if he, how much he's worth now. You know, it's a lot. Well, let's say he's got $2 billion and he decides to donate all $2 billion to some sort of charities, whether it be the University of Denver School of Law or something like that. Well, if you have, you know, the estate tax limit is $11.7 million. So anything above $11 million would be taxed as an estate. So that would mean if he's got $2 billion and, you know, 40% estate tax, there's going to be something like, you know, $800 million worth of estate tax. He says, well, I don't want to pay that. So I'm going to donate all of it to charitable causes. Well, a donation to a charitable cause is going to be exempt from the estate tax. So then he wouldn't have to pay any estate tax. You know, I don't know if he's that charitably minded. And there's there's certainly a lot of other sophisticated techniques to use to get around estate taxes. But if you're charitably inclined, it certainly can give you quite a tax break, either from an estate tax perspective or an income tax perspective, depending on how you structure things. It's all about planning. That's why I'm so glad I discovered you, Michael, and I get nothing but great feedback. I feel good about sending people your way because it means they can check that off their box of what needs to be done, and they need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information one more time. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too. Now, 
back to the Craig Silverman show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Boy, I've been trying to make this happen for a long time, but this week is the most appropriate time. It was 47 years ago that this guy defeated me in my final high school basketball game. Not long after that, he would defeat me again down in Durango when he started Fort Lewis. But then we played together at CU Law School. He went on to be one of the greatest water lawyers in Colorado, maybe America. Colorado is where it's really happening when it comes to water law. His name, Alan Hill. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Thank you so much, Craig. I don't know about greatest. You're using a little Bill Walton hyperbole there, but I appreciate it. I just interviewed Mark Randall, and I said he is now in my broadcasting front court with Bill Walton, who I interviewed for about an hour and 45 minutes, or I let him talk for that long because it was entertaining as hell. Spencer Haywood and Mark Randall. But you know what? I'm short on guards. And you were always quick enough to play some guard. So you want to be part of the backcourt? I'll work on it. I got to increase my shooting range. That's true. But you are a slasher. We will get to that. But just give us your Colorado bar number so we can make sure you're entitled to admittance. 11343. Probably a little bit ahead of yours. No. Actually, at the Denver DA's office, we got sworn in ahead of time. Smart boy with the H entitlement ahead of the S's of Silverman. But we got sworn in early because they put us to work early. And I am 11224. And Bill Ritter, who beat me alphabetically and in an election, you may remember, he's 11223. So there you go. You remember Bill Ritter? Do you remember him? I still see Bill occasionally. He uh... Whatever happened to that guy? I don't know. He kind of disappeared off the face of the earth after law school. Don't really hear much about him, do you? He had such promise, too. (laughs) Do you remember him on our hoop team? No. I know that Bill did not play hoop with us because he had some pride and knew he could not play hoop. I disagree. I recall him as a seventh man who would come in and bow people on purpose. That must have been your redshirt year of law school, Craig, when Bill played with you. Well, maybe we have different memories, and maybe mine is better than yours. We'll get Bill Ritter on to resolve this if we can find him. He just disappeared. I heard he went to Africa. I think he came back. How long ago? He was there for so long he came back. I think I saw him after he was in Africa at your wedding, for Pete's sakes. And I was at his. Now it's coming back to me. Yes, I danced at Bell's wedding, and he's been a guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. And am I right to remember that Timkovich was part of our hoop team? He was. He was a year behind us in law school, but he was part of our law school team. And then I played City League with Tim for probably 15 years in Broomfield. Okay, he is chief judge of the 10th Circuit, but it says his game at his prime. And I played with him in college, but I'll let you go first. The most remarkable thing about Tim when we played City League was that he made his first shot of the year for 15 consecutive years. And I'm not sure he picked up a basketball between the end of one season and the beginning of next. If he got his feet set, the shot was going in. And from distance, am I right? 
three-pointers yeah. came in after we played in college. Wasn't that an injustice to guys like me who could really shoot from outside? You know, I look back, Craig, I don't think in high school or college I ever took a shot that would have been a three-pointer. That was just not the goal to go out to 21 or 22 feet and shoot shots, although when we warmed up, when I was a junior, we played Denver East at the Auditorium Arena, and there was a three-point line there for the Rockets at the time, of course, and two of us who weren't going to get in the game, I think, shot about 33-pointers in our uh, layup line, but other than that, I don't ever remember shooting from that far out. You probably did in college. Absolutely. We were called zone busters. You had zone busters on your team, right? We did. I was not one of them. Now, we talk about when we were in our prime. When do you think a basketball player, just at our level, really does hit their prime? I think, Craig, that when I was probably maybe at the end of law school, maybe age 25, 26, that that was, I think that's about when I was the best player I could be. I mean, I wasn't practicing every day, so I'd lost that, but as far as physically and understanding the game and that type of thing, I'm going to say mid to late 20s. I think that's about right. Now, tell everybody when you got your hoop dreams. Where did you grow up? And when, in God's name, did you decide you were going to be a lawyer? What was the path? Well, I was born in Boulder, so I'm an unusual individual that way. And went to school all the way through Fairview High School in Boulder, and then went down to Port Lewis College in Durango. But in Boulder, you know, there were a couple of things, Craig, that I kind of laugh at now, because I'm apparently on tape at a family reunion when I was nine or 10 years old saying, when somebody asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I said I wanted to be a great athlete and a lawyer. And of course, everybody that hears that now says, well, at least you made one out of two, which is probably correct. I don't remember saying that when I was 10 or 11 years old. I think I started moving toward going to law school when I was probably a sophomore in college. Now you're being modest. Both those things came true. (laughs) Well, not according to my extended family that uh, commented on that. I've seen you. You are a great athlete and you are a lawyer. You've given your bar number. I'm there. So, Craig, I I look back and I think there are kind of moments when you don't realize how important those moments are, but they they are in how your career path turns out. And one of those, I tried out for the sophomore team when I was in high school at Fairview and made the team. I know I was the 15th man on the team because we were winning by 25 points and I got first into the game with two minutes left. And then with one minute left, the 16th guy came in for me. So I was way at the end of the bench. I hurt my knee. I went to the coach and said, I hurt my knee. I can't play anymore. And he looked at me and goes, okay. So not really a valued player on the sophomore team. Now, how tall were you as a sophomore? Probably 5'10 as a sophomore in high school. How tall were you at your tallest? Probably 6'3 or 6'4. And I I was 6'2 when I got out of high school. So I grew five inches when I was a sophomore and another inch or two as a junior. Are you shrinking like me? No, I'm actually getting taller. Oh, my God. That's what Mark Randall said. Damn it. Keep going. (laughs) So when I was a junior, went out for the basketball team as a new coach, and I'm thinking I'm doing okay, and they're going to post the list the next day. And I'm sitting in the gym, and the coach comes up to me, and he says, and I didn't even know he knew my name, and he goes, 
looks really serious, and he looks at me and goes, I think we're going to take a chance on you. Now, that was good news because I didn't have to sweat the list all night. And he said, you're just so physically weak. you got to work on that. I'm thinking, okay, I'll do that. And I think about that. If I if they hadn't taken a chance on me, my high school world would have been different. Wouldn't have played basketball in high school. Wouldn't have played in college. Would have a different circle of friends probably. But it just those kind of things that you don't think of as being particularly earth-shattering at the moment end up being earth-shattering. And by the time I was a senior in high school, we had a really good team. Now, wait a second. Time out. The guy said you're physically weak. Did you say, hey, F you? I'm sure you didn't say that, but it sounds like you took it to heart. But what did you do? Did you lift weights? When we were growing up, they said basketball players don't lift weights. Am I right? Yes, but his concern was that my hands were weak. So he said squeeze rubber balls or those uh, spring things, which I did all the time. And I think it helped me catch the ball and handle the ball in traffic and all those things. So, no, he was not saying do weights. He was saying you, you need a better grip. You needed stronger hands. Take care of the ball. Hold the ball. Don't let anybody take it away. So you turned into a defensive demon, and I had to suffer accordingly. But get to that part of this story. Keep going. So, Craig, one thing I'm sure that your coach never said to you, we scrimmaged when I was a senior before this season, and the coach pulled me over and he said, you know, they could have moved the basket and the backboard all the way up to the ceiling, and you never would have noticed it because you got the ball and didn't look at the basket to shoot. I'm guessing a coach never told you that. Am I correct? I had my father telling me to shoot, to score. That was instinctive for me. And yes, you're describing the way I played from being my teammate. Thank you very much. But we'll get to that. This is about you. So when I was a senior in high school, we were very good, which was really interesting because none of us had ever played with each other. We all went to different junior highs. We had been playing at different levels in the high school. And the five of us came together and Ended up being a really good team. Ended up winning 20 games that year, losing to a very, very talented manual team with Phil Taylor and LaVon Williams and Michael Ray Richardson, who you, I'm sure, played at least twice that year in, in, uh, in your I league. I beat him out for all city. What happened to him? Oh, yeah, NBA Rookie of the Year. But he got yeah. made into a garden. Maybe I'll get him on my show, and he'll be part of my backcourt with you. But keep going. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he doesn't have a bar number, but I could be wrong about that. No, he doesn't have to be in the lounge. Bill Walton and Spencer Haywood aren't lawyers. You're the only lawyer on the team right now, except I'm the coach. So if I count, go ahead. And then, so we lost to them in the the quarterfinals. And then we ended up playing uh, your team, George Washington, in the finals. And the coach before the game came out and said, you know, this might be the consolation game, but you always remember your last game in high school. And I do because I know I fouled you at least once, if not twice, to give you three-point plays. And I was one for nine from the field. I'm not really – I don't really remember statistics all that well for when I played, but I know I was one for nine, and the only shot I made was left-handed. So you dominated me that game. We won the game because we had really good players. But Let's see if we all remember this accurately, okay? Because we're old now. It's 47 years ago. I do remember when I was a senior, we made the state tournament, which was the Elite Eight. That was the goal, right? You made it to Denver. And if you made it to the Elite Eight, even if you lost the first game, 
Then you played in the consolation round. And then if you won your next game, then you got to compete for the consolation championship, which was still kind of cool. And I do remember shooting at that old ABA three-point line, and that seemed distant, even for me. And I could shoot from far out. They brought it in since then. But bottom line is we make it to the tournament after coming through district at Moby Gym in Fort Collins. What district did you go through? Our district, actually, we hosted a district at at Fairview. Well, how easy is that? Come on, you guys have every advantage. It's like GW went to Rangeview Thursday night and beat them to destroy their three-year winning streak on their home turf, and now they're playing for the championship Saturday night as they should. Isn't that something for my alma mater? But that year, we got beat in the first round by Bear Creek, who ended up being the champions. And Emmanuel should have won this way I remember it. And the next day in the consolation round, we played Durango. And we beat them. And that game was televised for God knows what reason. But I remember that. And I scored 19. And then we grappled for the consolation championship. And on your Fairview team, along with you, was a guy named Jeff Knapple, who ended up being a quarterback for the Denver Broncos. And he was playing that football player style against me, and I didn't like it. I didn't like being covered by you or him. (laughs) He was an amazing athlete and averaged like 23 and 13 that year and could pretty much do anything he wanted to do. He was remarkable. Was he a nice guy? What was he like? Oh, very nice guy. Just uh, very, very talented. You know, would jet off to recruiting trips, ended up committing to UCLA, played a year there. They had a coaching change, and he came to CU and started a number of games for CU for a couple of years, got into the Orange Bowl one year, uh, obviously had a cup of coffee with, with the Broncos, and eventually went into sports marketing, uh, stadium naming rights, and negotiated some really large contracts both here and overseas for Olympic stadiums. So good guy. I still talk to Jeff maybe every six months or once a year just to catch up, see how he's doing. Such a cool place to grow up. You think about, wow, what's it like to grow up in Boulder? What is it like? Well, Boulder was a wonderful place to grow up in the 1960s. It's much larger now, a lot more traffic. You know, we could bike anywhere. We could bike downtown from South Boulder, where I grew up. Two high schools that you knew when you were born, which high school you were going to go to. I lived in South Boulder. I was always going to go to Fairview. Didn't like Boulder, vice versa. By the time I got to high school, every game between Fairview and Boulder in basketball was at the event center. Well, not the event center, but at the field house in Boulder. We sold that out twice when I was uh, a senior in high school, 5,000 crazies watching really, really good games because Boulder High was very good that year as well. That must mean you won. That must mean you beat them twice. No, we we lost the first game. It was the only game all year that I led our team in scoring, so that says something. And then we beat them the second game. How many did you Oh, the first game we, we got beat up. I think I had 10 points. I think we only scored 50 that game, and we averaged 75 or 80 that year. They had our number that first game. We had a stinker like that against South that season. But go ahead. You got revenge against them in front of 5,000 people? Yeah, that was Valentine's Day, 1974. And we all still remember it. 
that got us the league title and then got us to be able to host the districts and we beat Alameda and Cherry Creek, Cherry Creek for the third time and onto the state tournament. And really an amazing year, great friends, friends for life from that team. And I'll, I'll tell you, Craig, five years ago, my high school coach reached out to me. I hadn't seen him. He lives up in Oregon and said so he was coming into town. You know, maybe we could have lunch or dinner. And I said, sure. And I got a couple of the guys from here. And then I thought, what the heck? And I called the people that are out of town. Jeff Naples in California, another player on the team's in Provo. Another one is in uh, South Carolina, another. So from across the country and said, hey, in a couple of weeks, you want to come in? And we ended up getting nine out of 11 players to meet for dinner in Boulder and surprise the coach, which was a very cool evening. See, maybe that could have happened for my team, but we had to lose to you guys, and you're celebrating that <laughs> consolation championship. No, it's all about the camaraderie, and I have close friends from high school galore, but you went on to play hoop at Fort Lewis, Division Two. What was that experience like? Talk about another intriguing town, Durango, and you have some lifelong ties, not only to Boulder, but to Durango. Tell everybody about that. So I decided at the end of college or into high school that I wanted to go in-state, and there were some financial reasons for that, and took a trip down to Durango after the basketball season, met with the Fort Lewis coach, and the first thing he said was, you know, we'd really like to have Jeff Napple. And I thought, that's not happening. He's going to go play football at UCLA. And he told me that he couldn't really evaluate me, but I was certainly welcome to come down and try out. So that was my recruitment, Craig, probably a little different than most, as in we don't really care if you come or not. But I was really committed to going down there because the school and the town just felt magical to me. And I figured if I didn't play basketball, I'd learn how to ski better. So went down, and there were 40 guys trying out for the team. It got winnowed down to about 18 or 19, and it came down to me and one other guy as to who was going to be that 18th or 19th guy and the coach and the assistant coach decided to keep both of us. So again, one of those moments where it was hit or miss. It was a long shot, made the team by the skin of my teeth. I was pretty excited, you know, worked my way up. By the second semester, I had a scholarship, which sounds really impressive, except it was for tuition and fees, which at the time at Fort Lewis was a little over $200 a semester. So a lot of things have changed in the last 40 years, I guess. And then realized kind of by the end of that year that there were always going to be new players, recruited players. And at the end of that year, the coach said, you don't have your scholarship next year. It was just for a semester, but you can play if you want to. So ended up playing as a sophomore, playing mostly JV games for the assistant coach. And I'll tell you one thing that happened that year, Craig, we had a makeup game with the Adam State JVs in Alamosa. So we went over just in a van with eight guys and the assistant coach who coached the JVs, and he got thrown out of the game, got three technicals, which is hard to do because after two, you're tossed. But he was over at the far side of the gym just as he walked out and turned around to the ref and in a really soft voice said, and you got rabbit ears. And I still remember looking at the ref, and he's computing this because he knows if he gives him another T, he does have rabbit ears. But he teed him up. But before the assistant coach left, he looked at me and said, you're coaching. So as far as I know, I'm the only 19-year-old 
to be a player coach at the college level. So for the last 12 minutes of the game, I made substitutions and, you know, changed offenses and defenses. And in my mind, we made up points in the last 12 minutes. So for me, it was a win, but nobody ever asked me to coach again. So, and you know who that coach is, Craig, because you, he's a lawyer in Denver who I worked for for a few years off and on in Durango and up here, uh, Rush Yates. I did not know that was Russ Shades. Russ Shades, who's been in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Russ Shades, who was close personal friends and the attorney for Bobby Knight, Coach Bobby Knight. Am I right? Yep. And when I got to Durango, I met him because he had just moved to Durango to practice law. He'd been up here practicing for five or six years. Moved to Durango because he wanted to coach basketball, and he was the assistant coach volunteer assistant at Fort Lewis for a couple of years, my first two years. And I got to be friends with him and saw what he did for a living and the intellectual challenges and interesting things that he got to do, along with the fact that he also had money he could spend. He had cars and stuff that I thought, well, that that sounds like kind of a nice way to make a living. And that was one of the things that kind of moved the needle for me to go to law school. So again, Craig, if I hadn't made the team in high school, if I hadn't barely made the team, and he was the one that pushed me to make the team with the the head coach, if I hadn't done all that, I don't know that I would have gotten to know him as well. And I don't know that I would have aimed at, at becoming a lawyer eventually. So, you know, there's just those kind of serendipitous events that you don't recognize at the time. But when you look back, you think, huh, this lined up very well. So ended up, Craig, in college thinking I wanted to go to law school, had some frustrating moments. I know in your world, college was, you know, get the ball and shoot. And for me, it was play a lot one game, not play any the next game, wondering what was going on. But time out, you're selling me a little short because one of the ways you can get the ball and shoot is to get a rebound. So I did like rebounding, too. Yes, Well, you have to be on the court to do that. And I was not on the court very much as a freshman, a sophomore, or a junior. I ended up, Craig, starting four games in four years of college. The first two when I was a freshman because one guy had quit, two guys were hurt, and six got suspended for bad conduct on a road trip. And that boosted me into the top five. One when I was a senior and the guy showed up late for a meeting before the game. And one that I earned as a junior. So... Quit putting yourself down. You were a starter on a Division II basketball program where you got a scholarship, and then you didn't even hit your peak till you were 26. I saw you in law school. Let's move on to there because I think that was, you know, maybe the pinnacle of basketball achievement. The team we formed in law school and competed in the open division at CU. Let's see if you have a good memory of that. Oh, I do, because I was very tired of losing the first two years we're in law school. And I recruited some guys from that I played with in high school and college to join us that last year off and on. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, I remember. That's where Russ Yates saw that you could really coach and you could be a general (laughs) manager, too. I love guys who can do it all like that. And you could get me the ball. I like that, too. Keep going. I did get you the ball, and I, I we had some pretty good players at the law school, but that was really an amazing accomplishment because we won our league, and then we played the number two team from the other league that was 
basically all CU football players and crushed them by like 20 points. That was so much fun in the field house. We ended up losing the open championship to Emmett Lewis and some other guys that were still hanging around from the CU basketball team. Emmett Lewis had been what all big eight, weren't they still in the big eight then? And yeah, that's really fair. You know, it's, it's, he was just yeah. hitting his prime after his college career. Yeah. But we all got our intramural champion t-shirts, which was the goal. And who do you recall on that team? Tell everybody the dream team you put together. Well, I don't know about dream team, but you and I played. Nick Rennick was on that team. We had my friend Skip Duranko, who's a dentist in Westminster, played with me in college. And he's tall. Uh, he's tall. And he's good. Skip is 6'5 and jumps out of the gym. Had a couple of guys from my high school, Ralph Patterson, who you, I think, got to know a little bit that year. Craig, whose dad was the PA announcer at CU for years and years, Father Pat. And we... Didn't we have Bobby Hoffman on that team? You know, I got Bobby to play at times. He was at Fairview coaching most of the time that year because that's the year they won the state title. Fairview won the big school state title in 81. And he certainly played with us sometimes in City League. I don't remember him playing in the CU Intramural League. Anyway, we overachieved. That was the thing. A lot of people said, hey, these guys are law students. How good could they be? But I enjoyed law school at CU Law. What was it like for you? You were living in your hometown. Yeah, it was different for me. I enjoyed law school a lot more toward the end of law school. I think back, Craig, and I probably would have been a better candidate to take a year off. I looked at law school as just kind of the continuation of college. You, know, you go four years, you take a summer off, you go to law school in the fall, and probably didn't focus as well as I should have the first year. But then once I started clerking, doing water law, by the way, uh, on a clerking basis in Boulder, in turn, whatever they call it today, I could see the real world and it got me refocused on, on law school. But, you know, I enjoy doing the CU things that I'd done some of in high school. I like going to the football games. I like going to basketball games like doing the Trivia Bowl, you know, going up to the Alfred Packard Grill. All of those things were great experiences. CU in Boulder is a really good place to, to go to college. There's just lots of stuff to do and never a dull moment. I enjoyed law school. I enjoyed living in Boulder. This edition of my show is entitled March Moisture. Of course, we have March Madness, and we've already talked about our March Madness 47 years ago. and then. Four years later, down in Durango, you know, you guys beat us in the night before the Broncos' first Super Bowl, and we stayed overnight, and then there was a huge blizzard, and it put in <laughs> severe jeopardy my ability to watch that Super Bowl. Do you remember that detail? Oh, I do remember that. It was the night before the 77 Super Bowl, the uh, 78 Super Bowl after the 77 season, right. and I remember the... I lived up the valley north of Durango that didn't have cable yet. Durango did, but we were on a UHF antenna that was really inconsistent. So we needed to go in town and find a place to watch the game. And I did, but it was a very interesting drive down the valley that 20 miles into town because there was two feet of snow on the ground that fell basically at the start of our game the night before until you guys tried to leave town the next day. 
I think I might have triggered that avalanche with the 28 points I put on you guys, even though somehow you managed to win. Yeah, even though we managed to win by 20, yeah. Hey, you had a big home court advantage. You had a lot of fans. That wasn't fair. Hometown referees, tell the truth about that. So what happened the year before when they played played you at, at CC in Colorado Springs? We had an off day. We had an off day. Anyway, that you guys went it. That's why I look up to you, and I still do, but the success you made of Water Law, the moisture part of March Moisture, is that blizzard we had. I thought, oh, boy, now the drought is over. It's got to have so much water in that blizzard. Am I right or am I wrong? Well, one of the things, Craig, is that when you get a lot of snow in town in March or April, it's a good thing because... It doesn't necessarily fill up all the reservoirs because a lot of the reservoirs are up higher. But what it does do is it irrigates a lot of people's lawns and, and some of the crops out east. And so it delays the demand for water that might otherwise be there. If we get a really dry March and April, people start watering their lawns and that can shift the demand curve when we typically think heavy water use occurs, particularly in cities with lawn watering, that it might be more July and August. And if it starts early, then you're going to have a a water short year. The fact that it snows in Denver on the Front Range at this time of year is not as important as when it snows up higher and builds up the snowpack, because the snowpack then melts slowly and fills the streams, and the streams then can uh, fill the reservoirs. So the snowpack is is typically more important than having snow down in Denver in March. But psychologically, it's nice to have that snow because people don't turn on their sprinkler systems if if it snows and rains in March and April. Gosh, you are good at this. And we're definitely different kind of people. Boulder versus Denver. Guy who likes to play defense and pass the ball and me who likes to rebound (laughs) and score. And water law, I took that at CU Law School, and I never liked to miss class, but I think it was at 8 in the morning. I had a buddy, Michael Cohen, who worked with me at the DA's office. I think we were interning. He took good notes. I learned first in time, first in right, and I passed the test, and that was enough for me because I knew I wasn't going to be a water lawyer. The subject was a little too dry for me. So what was it that attracted you? Craig, I I met a guy when I got out of college. I came up and worked for the city of Louisville, mapping some of their streets and other things, just kind of grunt work. And I met a lawyer who did the city's water work. And I would listen to him talk about it. And I thought, that's really interesting for something that I didn't know existed until meeting him in the summer of 78. And he said at the end of the summer, hey, next spring when you are thinking about a clerkship, give me a call and we'll see if we got anything available. And his firm was in Boulder. And I called him the next spring and went out to interview in my best golf shirt, which I now know probably should have worn a suit, but he was casual. So I went in and I'm talking to him. And one of the other partners comes by and looks in and he goes, yeah, I'm interviewing this guy for a clerkship. And the other partner goes, I thought we'd filled all our clerkships. (laughs) Okay, hi. But he apparently had some clout and he hired me and I worked my tail off that summer, learned about how the nuts and bolts of water law work 
and it just seemed to be in my comfort zone. Craig, I then, when I got out of law school, went to Durango and practiced for five years, more general civil practice. And you could ask me today about a personal injury case and how to figure out what the damages are. And I could probably punch in the numbers, but it just, it's not comfortable for me. But I look at water rights and diversion records and how much water a crop uses and what a city's demands are, and it all just makes sense to me. I'm a firm believer, Craig, that your passion finds you rather than you finding your passion. And there are people who think they're going to go into one area of law, and once they get out, they find something else and think, gee, I never thought I'd go into this, and I didn't think I'd go into it. But once I got involved with it, it just, I was interested in it. Turns out I had a passion for it. I had a thirst for more understanding of what happens. And when I left Durango in 86, I came back up to work for the guy I'd clerked for, and it was almost exclusively a water law practice. And that was really good for me. I got to be proficient at one area of law rather than trying to be a jack of all trades as I was in Durango. Yeah, it's such a cool field. Colorado is the king of water law. Am I right, or is that just my normal uh, exaggerations about Colorado? I don't think it's an exaggeration. You know, there's there's some fun historical facts. There are two states in the in the United States where every river in the state starts in the state, and Colorado is one of them. You can think about the answer to the other one. It's kind of a trick question, but um, and Alaska. Colorado is the only Alaska. No, no, try the other one. Hawaii. Oh, that's there. You go. I should have had that. <laughs> Always get a few on that one. And uh, Colorado is the only state that I'm aware of that uses courts exclusively to determine the right to water. Most states have a state engineer that issues permits for the use of water. Can I have an appeal on that last question? Because when you asked, did you say it was confined to one state? Alaska has no borders with this state. Maybe I misheard the question. Okay, go on. But not every river starts in Alaska. Some of it starts in Canada. Okay. I, I totally missed that question. I'm glad it wasn't on the bar exam. Keep going. <laughs> so Colorado did an amazing thing a little over 50 years ago. When the state started, you went into the district court in the county in which your water right was located and got a decree. In 1969, the legislature passed a really forward-thinking act, in my opinion, that created seven water courts, one for each major drainage in Colorado. For the South Platte, it's in Greeley. For the Arkansas, it's in Pueblo. For the Rio Grande, it's in Alamosa and so on through Durango, Gunnison, Glenwood, and Steamboat. Then had a process where you filed an application with the water court. The application was published so that people could review it and get in the case to argue against what the person with the application was doing. It created plans for augmentation, or at least defined that more carefully. And it really moved Colorado to the forefront of states in how water was developed. Some people would say, gee, Colorado is, is really based, because it's based on first in time, first in right, whoever diverted the water first gets all of theirs before the next person who started their diversion work. It is completely an economic-based system. If you have an 1860 water right and you want to sell it, you're going to get a lot more money for it than the person who has a 
1880 or 1890 water right and a heck of a lot more than the person has a 1922 water right. But that pre-market has worked pretty well. There's complaints about, well, you're taking all the water off of irrigation and putting it in the cities, and maybe there's some discussion to be had on that. But the free market system, I think, has worked pretty well in Colorado. There's some things that aren't completely free market. The Colorado Water Conservation Board can obtain in-stream flow rights to help the environment. There's some other ways that it's not strictly free market, but it really is a recognition first of the first in time, first in right law back from 1883. And then it has also developed in ways that you, there are techniques and principles that you change the use of water, the place you use the water from irrigation into cities. And that's litigation. It's no different than the, the rules for any other civil litigation, discovery and arguments and testimony and appeals that I think have generally resulted in pretty good results. Nice. And you have a great reputation. And I just took that tour around Colorado, took I-70 West, dropped through Delta. I was where the Uncompagra meets the Gunnison. And that's yep. uh, Fort Uncompagra and the old Spanish Trail. Then I went on to Durango and I circled the San Juans because my family thought I couldn't handle that road for whatever reason. But then coming back through the Hamden route, as I call it, through Buena Vista and through Sawash County, going through Del Norte for the first time, the headwaters of the Rio Grande, you just get a realization that Colorado sheds these great rivers and guys like you are responsible for the laws surrounding those rivers. It's a cool way to make a living. Does your practice mean you travel to these areas or is it all online these days? It's mostly online, Craig. I do a lot of work in the Arkansas Basin, do a lot of work in the South Platte Basin, some up in the Colorado River, occasionally in Durango, which is the Animas River. And it, it practiced in all of them at one time or the other. You always want to go out and look at the property. You know, it's the, the walking the land is worth a thousand words to understand what the structures look like and, and, and how, what the engineering is going to look like on it. But you're right about the rivers, Craig. I, I happened to be in Durango when the Gold King mine spill happened and the Animus River that goes right through Durango turned orange. And there was a real concern about the quality and people couldn't go in the river. They couldn't put their canoes in, their kayaks. The dog couldn't jump in. And I remember being down there and watching people uh, on the Ninth Street Bridge just staring down at the river. I think there was a recognition in Durango of how calming and reliable having that pristine river run through town is. And I think that recognition led to people wanting to make sure that that kind of spill, that kind of pollution didn't happen again. Sometimes there's too much of a good thing. My troubadour, Dave Gunders, has a great song, All That Water, about the recent Boulder flood. I guess it's about eight years ago now. What's your memories of flooding? Does that flood you with law work, or what What are your memories? No, and it's interesting, Craig, because if you say water law to somebody that lives east of the Mississippi, they say, so what do you do? Do you sue people when people get flooded? And 
No, it's the reverse in Colorado. You want to bring water to yourself instead of the other way around. The flood in 2013 in Boulder was amazing to me just because it flooded places that I didn't think were in the floodplain. Along Foothills Parkway, the, the water coming from the south that went in there. And, you know, my dad lived along there and his car got flooded in the parking garage. People getting their cars swept away because I don't think people here typically even understand the force that, that water can have when flood occurs. That was really unusual. And what it also triggered was Boulder County and a lot of the surrounding municipalities and, and ditch companies going in and repairing the stream and trying to improve it in a way that the flood won't, any future flood won't have quite the impact that that one did. If you drive up Boulder Canyon and, and take a quick ride as you go up and go up Four Mile Canyon, a lot of that creek bed just got swept out and a lot of the road was eliminated. They've really put in a lot of rock walls and other things to try and keep the channel where it is. And I give them a lot of credit for that. It's, I, I think people just didn't have experience with what the power of a flood would be. And boy, that was a lesson learned. I think it's, it's lucky that Boulder got out of it without more injury and only had, I say only, but only had uh, property damage. Now, to a degree, I'm a Southeast Denverite, haven't moved far in my whole life from where I got born. And I look up at Boulder and I think, well, yeah, they have fires and floods and riots occasionally too. But did you think you would ever have a flood when you grew up in Boulder? Did you ever think a flood could do that kind of damage? You know, Craig, when I was in seventh grade, so 1969, the spring of 69, there was a flood in my neighborhood. I lived by Martin Park in Martin Acres, and there was a creek, Bear Creek, that comes down Table Mesa Drive. You could probably picture that, Craig. It comes down Table Mesa Drive west of Broadway, and then it goes through the park and eventually comes out kind of where Williams Village area is, where those tennis courts are, all of that area. And that flooded. And it was surreal because it jumped its banks and it really flooded some houses. My street was had eight inches of water flowing down it for a couple of days. So I understood that that could happen. But in that circumstance, yes, there was a lot of rain, but they also learned that they needed to widen that channel and that if there was any debris and it was going under a road, it was going to flood. So I, I, I knew that was possible, but really Boulder in the Denver area has escaped that. There, uh, You may be aware, Craig, there was a huge flood in 1937 that took out the Castlewood Canyon Dam that is off of Highway 83 south of Denver. It's an amazing sight if you haven't right. ever walked no, back I, in I, there. I've seen yeah, I remember 64, my dad's workplace near the South Platte got flooded. We had to go get some records. but. No, it's, it's interesting, and I'm sorry you don't get business from a flood. It just proves that a flood's not good for anybody. Anyway. Well, and, and you know what the uh, response was to the 65 flood, Craig? Well, I think they decided the businesses shouldn't be in that low area of the valley, and they made the yep. highway bigger, right? Yep, and they built Cherry Creek Reservoir, which is a flood control structure. Now, do you think that I could ever get flooded by Cherry Creek Reservoir having a failure? That's the only way I figured that I no. could get flooded. No, no. Uh, 
that structure I think is very, very sound and they inspect it with a lot of frequency. Both Cherry Creek and Chatfield are flood control and they, they I'm sure would operate to at least buffer any, any future flooding along the South Platte or Cherry Creek. My recollection, the 65 flood was that the worst damage was really along what's now 270. I remember driving along there to go out to, not driving, but being a passenger going out to the airport. And there was just massive damage there along where the refineries are. You're a balderite, lucky Lewing at Denver damage. That's okay. The rivalry continues. (laughs) But we are united, I think, in one thing, back to hoops, near and dear to my heart, because we have this affection for basketball. Basketball played correctly. And that brings us to Nikola Jokic. Do you support the Joker for NBA MVP this year? Of course. He's a unique player. Well, that's not the award. It's not UVP. It's the most valuable player. Most valuable player. And he makes everybody around him better, both with the way he plays and with his temperament. And, you know, as I've mentioned, I think, in stories to you before, Craig, I I lived in the same building as the Joker when he first got to town and decided not to share an elevator with him because he filled the elevator in that building. Well, he had his two um, brothers with him, too, and they are yeah. they are monsters of the midway. From that day on, just seeing him in there, he was just a big kid. He was a 19-year-old kid. But watching him play in the summer league that year, I thought, he has a chance to be really good because he sees things that other people don't see, and he's refined that. And then he got his body caught up with his talents. And I think he's he's certainly the most interesting player and the one I most enjoy watching. But he stepped it up a level, and now he's one of the top two or three players in the league, and I think he's the most valuable. And do you see how we started this conversation with me asking you what is the prime of a basketball player? Now we're talking elite level, and he's 26, which I think is the number you mentioned. But if you had the training and the conditioning and eating right, which he is now, and the skills, this guy could be improving still. And it's a wonderful thing to see. I love basketball, and I love watching him play. What about you? I have been hypnotized by him from the first time I watched him play. And I'm so excited that he loves Denver and loves being here, likes the guys he plays with. And I'm really excited because, Craig, you you obviously go back to the days of of David Thompson, and we all wondered what happens when his 42-inch vertical jump goes down to 30 inches. And unfortunately, he had other issues. But Nikola Jokic could play till he's 40. There's no nothing that will diminish his – jumping because he can't really jump very well now. He's not quick. He is just very smart and uses positioning well and sees things that other people don't see. And I don't see that ever fading or him getting worse at any of those things as he gets older. And according to you and Mark Randall, you can keep growing even once you're old. I did not know that, but you two guys say it's true. So Nicola. He could end up being seven two or seven four. Why stop there? And I don't think it makes any difference for him. He never gets his shot blocked. He releases it so high oh, with an yeah. arc that he, he, he just, got it blocked the other night. He can't get his shot blocked most of the time. He doesn't. But you know what? When you're a scorer, and I was, 
The guy blocked my shot. That just meant he was going to go for the head fake the next time because he would want more. I got to tell you a quick funny story, Craig. I played in the City League tournament in Durango, and there was a guy that came over from Pagosa named Bayard Forrest. And Bayard Forrest was an All-American at Grand Canyon when they were in AIA, led him to the national title, played for the Phoenix Suns as the backup to Alvin Adams for four or five years until his back bothered him so much he couldn't play anymore. He's playing in the City League tournament, and he goes up for a layup, and I'm behind him, and I block his layup. And the ball comes right back down to him, and he pump fakes. And I started laughing so hard. He made the layup, and he looks at me, and I said, that may be the greatest compliment I've ever gotten. You thought you had to pump fake me when all you had to do was go up and stuff me in the basket. I really appreciate that. Oh, boy. You just name dropped a big NBA name that you played against. That's the cool thing about hoops. <laughs> you love basketball. I love basketball. Mark Randall, hell, his accomplishments in the NBA and high school, college are enormous, but he's a little down on basketball, and you are too, Alan Hill. I think you guys are purists, and you don't like the style, but isn't that born of the three-pointer more than anything? Oh, it is. And I never understood in the 60s when the Rockets came to town and then, you know, the NBA and college adopted the, the three-pointer, why there weren't more three-pointers being taken and why there wasn't some amazing skill level developed to, to cash in. It's, you know, you can make a very low percentage of threes and still outscore anybody that's taken twos. I mean, it's 50% more. I understand the math, but I think it's swung too far the other way. And I, I would love to see, even if it's a, the, a an experimental league, just see what would happen with only allowing three-pointers in the fourth quarter or limiting the number of makes that you can count as three or something like that and see what happens. I'll end it this way. They had three-pointers, I think, in law school, didn't they, when we almost won the open division? But we beat the football players, and that was a bit of an upset. And to me the better team will almost always win. And you can have superior athletes, but if you're not passing the ball and functioning as a team on offense and defense, you're probably not going to walk off the court a winner. Isn't that the universal no, I, thing that rings true and why GW will probably be state champions once more? It is, Craig. I guess the only thing I would say is I probably sound like a old guy when i say this is i like the three-pointer i like dunks i like all phases of basketball i think we have lost some of the art of the mid-range and the give and go and motion offenses because they don't function well with a three-point line and i wish there was a way to get some of that back in all right this is not craig's basketball lounge this is craig's lawyer's lounge i've waited a while to get you on you've had 40 years almost of success can you believe it it's almost our 40 year anniversary has it been worthwhile what do you think about the practice of law what would you tell people out there who are contemplating maybe becoming a lawyer I actually, Craig, meet with quite a few people. I, I think I told you I, I, I'm on the board of trustees at, at Fort Lewis College, and that's been very interesting and exciting, but it's also given me an opportunity to talk to students when I'm down there, particularly people that want to go to law school and whether I think it was worth it. And I always tell them, 
I think it was absolutely worth it. I like what I do. Sometimes I love it. And the intellectual challenges, the different way of working through problems and problem solving that you really pick up on the first year of law school is amazing. And regardless of what you're going to do in life, at least one year of law school, if not the entire three, will very much help you in your preparation to move through any job that you end up having or any profession. I do hesitate sometimes in being an unconditional recommendation because, Craig, I would hate to get out of law school right now with $150,000 in debt if that was the cost of law school. I know when when we got to see you, it was $1,400 a year, tuition and fees, and DU was $4,200. I remember that because I got admitted to DU, and I thought I'd go broke if I had to pay $4,200 a year tuition and fees. You know what DU and CU law students all have in common? We all got into DU. Keep going. Yes. <laughs> and and the $1,400 was still a stretch financially. That was still a lot of hours to work. I tell people to make sure that they aren't going to penalize themselves with too much debt. And, and I hope what that means is find a law school that is in your comfort level to afford it. But there are so many things you can do with a law degree. Something will grab you if you have the law degree and have learned the, the critical thinking and going through the Socratic method and all those things that seemed difficult at the time, but really refined the thought process to help you work through not just legal problems, but practical problems and how best to advise people on getting a solution that, that worked for them, maybe not winning, but getting what they needed out of the case. I would absolutely do it again. I've made lifelong friends in law school, and I have enjoyed the intellectual challenges. Uh, you know, I enjoyed the early on when I did a lot of jury trials. I've enjoyed the time now that I analyze water rights and try and figure out what's best for the client to move forward. So, but I'm curious, Greg, are, are, what are your thoughts? Do you move forward on law school? Are you excited about advising people to go? Boy, I have the same sentiment. My dad installed it in me and it's sort of something that we do in my family. So did you have lawyers in your family before you? No, no. So, so maybe it's different, but I, I would repeat what you just said. I wrote it down. It was so profound and I've enjoyed this conversation so much and I miss our regular lunches together, but this is what I wrote down. I like what I do. Sometimes I love it. And that would apply to me. And we're pretty yep. darn fortunate to feel that way after 40 years. And I agree, there's a world of things you could do with it. My dad said, look at Howard Cosell. He's a lawyer. You can do anything with a law degree, right? Absolutely. Alan, you're the best. I'm glad I finally got you into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. This is the definitive Alan Hill interview. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. Enjoy the time. See ya. Bye. Hey, it's my honor to talk to you about the Colorado Hawks. This is a good program helping kids, underprivileged kids, kids with dreams of playing sports, kids who could use help to go to college. The Colorado Hawks produce high-level athletes in boys and girls basketball and girls soccer. 
The program prides itself on keeping kids off the streets, helping underprivileged youth earn opportunities they might not get otherwise. Most importantly, the Colorado Hawks produce an affordable program that has never turned an athlete away due to expense. The Hawks love Nikola Jokic, just like we do, and currently have a t-shirt selling fundraiser with 100% of the proceeds going right back into this program. Head to Jokic for MVP, or if it's easier to spell, and it is Joker for MVP, J-O-K-E-R for MVP, get a great high-quality shirt that says, you guessed it, Jokic for MVP, and help a great organization at the same time. Let's come together to support a program that has helped to provide so many opportunities for Colorado's young people. That's Jokic for MVP to buy a shirt with all proceeds going to the Colorado Hawks organization. Thank you. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Craig. Troubadour. How are you? Tremendous. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, Craig. I was worried about you last week. I did not think you would make it. Our five-day challenge, the size of that blizzard, your age. Thanks for hauling me through it. Your puppy is what? 17 years old now? No, he's not, but you know, but I'll I'll, you know, gloss over that one. I'm proud of us fulfilling that 5-day challenge. What about that blizzard? Did it disappoint you or was it everything you expected? It met my expectations. It was tremendous. And our walk on the 5th day during the challenge, that was the most challenging, but it was fun, really. Oh, those walks were so great. Sunday afternoon walk, I finally coaxed you out of the house. It was Sunday at 5, and it was still coming down like crazy. I told you I work on my column on Sunday. She can't believe anybody's working on a Sunday, but I was. And then I had to work one day when the melting began, and there you were taunting me with pictures of a place where I nearly died. And I think. It's appropriate for you to tell this story. Well, I didn't mean to taunt you. I was really just kind of weighing in on how low the water was and how welcome it was, this big storm, because I think it's going to do a big part you know, to, to at least partially fill the lakes and reservoirs that are so low. But Craig, before we go there, can I just tell, tell your, your, your listening fans a, a quick story about you? Sure. During the blizzard, I I was coaxing you out, and I was like, let's go for a walk. 
I sent you the walking emoji and you said, I'm shoveling. Well, I had been out shoveling and I noticed that you weren't shoveling. And so I texted you back, you're not shoveling. There's another guy there who you paid to shovel. And you said, I'm paying a guy to shovel. And I texted back, so paying a man to shovel is akin to shoveling? Question mark, question mark. That I thought was kind of funny. It's better than shoveling yourself because it's helping the economy. <laughs> it is. And I'm, I'm, and I'm down with that. I think it's great. But I thought it was funny. I was in writing my Colorado Sun column trying to make money for the family, but that's okay. You can belittle me. And I will tell this story that about four weeks ago during this great drought, yeah. we take our walk in South Metro area and there's a lake that is just drying up. But the fascinating part is you can almost walk to the middle of the lake and that's right. God knows what you will find. So in my adventuresome ways, I went. And then I was thrilled. But then when I started... I was with you. I chose not to walk because I, I saw how muddy it was. <laughs> not the way I walked in, but the way I walked out. And then you wandered off with a phone call and I got yeah. stuck in the mud and my shoes stuck. started coming off. And yep. I'm yelling for David. And there I am. And I'm going down. Seriously. My yes. dogs know better. They're looking at me like, hey, nice to know you. You, the sun's going down, it's getting cold, and I'm literally stuck in the mud. Do I let right. my shoes go up? What do I do? I prayed to the Lord because you weren't coming. And well, that's somehow because I, I, was, I was watching from behind a bush cackling. At my near-death experience, and then you sent me a picture this week saying that the lake was getting replenished with the water of the blizzard, and I could never nearly die there again. Way to go. Well, I'm glad you made it through. I was watching from the banks, so I think if you had gotten into real real trouble, I, I would have, you know, done something. You know, <laughs> grabbed a stick Other or than called 911 or something. I don't right. know. Okay. Well, yeah, the perfect dirge, because I love yeah. your song, All That Water, but it starts yeah. again mournfully. What is it, a ukulele or a banjo? You can tell no. something bad is coming, a storm. Never call a mandolin a ukulele. Oh, it's, okay, it, what do it's, I know? It, it's it's a grievous, no, no, it's it's a terrible thing to call a, a, a mandolin. That's what it is. Mandolin. I'm playing mandolin on that one. I'm a, a long way from a virtuoso, but I like to use it uh, on some of my songs. Listen to the mandolin rain. Isn't that a big yeah, song? Yes. Bruce, and, Bruce Hornsby. Love it. And boy, do you bring on the rain. What inspired this song, All That Water? So that, that is a true story. That, that is autobiographical. This is a flood that happened in the year 2013. Hopefully... People who are listening will remember because it was tough. It was for a lot of people in, in Boulder County and probably even beyond um, suffered grievously. I mean, it was uh, there. I don't know how many homes were lost to that flood, but I have good friends. I'm still my good friend. Suzanne lives in the house that was I mean, all of their land was underwater, like was under about three and a half feet of rolling river is over, in, over across their entire you know, acreage, their horse property. Whereabouts so people can situate it? It's over near Haystack Mountain, just kind of northwest of Haystack between, you know, on the way to Lyons. It's off of 93. 
I remember you're such a good friend. You've written songs about T and now about your friend Chan, who has since passed away. It's a shame. He experienced that flood, and you were such a good friend. You not only wrote a song about it, but you were out there for months, and you would come back and tell me about the mud and the muck. It yep. was horrible. Uh, well, I, I lent, lent a hand. So much of the real you know, hard work and, and uh, labor were, well, Jan and Suzanne had to heave too. And luckily, we found some good um, volunteer sources as well. There were some churches that really came through, kind of made it a, a project for the church that they would try to save a house that was really impacted by the flood. I mean, their their whole first floor, the the river came through, and we had to cut out the sheetrock and pull up the floors. It was it was a big deal. People thought that the house would not be salvaged, and we proved them wrong. Now, your late buddy Jan he survived the flood, but then. Wow, he got inflicted with cancer, passed away. Your song is a tribute to your friend. Tell us about him. Well, it's a tribute to to my friend and actually the relationship he had with his wife, Suzanne. It's a song about fortitude and, and love of, of your place. You know, they had, they had bought this house years ago when it was little and over the years done their own additions. A lot of, a lot of these little additions, which kind of became bigger additions were kind of, they were homespun and, and they, you know, they did a lot of the work themselves. It's a beautiful house. It's a, you know, kind of a, kind of a country home. It's horse property. Suzanne loves horses and still is there with her, her gorgeous horse, Bodie. And, you know, they loved the land. They didn't, they didn't want to leave it and they wanted to bring it back despite the challenges that were in front of them. And I mean, it took a few years. Well, you wrote a beautiful song, as you often do, but this is one of your best. You had to be very happy about it. Do I hear a synthesizer about halfway through? There's that odd instrument again. You know, it's, that's, that's an accordion, oh. Craig. No, no synthesizer in that one. It's a pretty or, organic, you know, uh, acoustic song. And um, it's mostly uh, acoustic guitar, mandolin, and then I played an accordion. Again, I'm, I'm far from uh, adept at accordion, but I can usually practice a, a part and kind of play that, play that part as a kind of a, you know, a coloring instrument for the music. All right. I have to give a warning before this song. Property might get hurt. But the other thing that could happen is you could start singing all day long like me. All that water. All that water. Anyway, you sing it better than I do. Let's let everybody listen. Thank you, Troubadour. Thanks, Craig. And my, my feelings always go out to Jan when I hear this song. And to Suzanne, who's still there and hosting the jams. We come up there and, and jam. I was just talking to her about when we're going to do the next one. Our, gr our group loves to play up there, so we're still doing it. And what did Jan play? Was he part of the musical group? Absolutely. Jan played a lot of different instruments, guitar, and he had this thing I called the magic flute. It's like a, it's like an electronic, it's a, it's a synthesizer that's played by, it looks like a clarinet, but you actually engage the synthesizer by blowing into it. And he played that and it was, it was a lot of fun to, to, uh, to hear him play. So this property wasn't just special for Jan and Suzanne, it was for the whole band. Yes, for our whole band, our, our group, we have kind of a, 
um, musical community, and uh, it's still still going strong even through the pandemic. We've we've had some days in the early spring when the w- wind was howling through, and we played in the living room with all of the doors and windows open for our, with masks and at distance. We, we you know we keep the music alive at the jams. Well, God bless this song, All That Water, dedicated to Jan and Suzanne from their good pal, the troubadour, Dave Gunders. Thank you, Dave. I really, yeah, I really appreciate you bringing this to light and, uh, and uh, bringing the story, to, you know, out in, in, in your show. My, Thanks, Greg. My pleasure. My honor. All That Water by Dave Gunders. I can't sleep, dreaming of rain Won't stop falling I look to the sky, watching the creek In the early dawn I heard the horses call I jumped from the porch, man, I can't believe Falling to a river when the river should be Made it to the barn, set the horses free Got them up to higher ground Tell me now, love, what's that sound? Tearing the roots the old trees falling, the one that the kids used to play around When the family got together on a Sunday It's the place we love All that water Outs over the bridge, it's got me worried How we're gonna get through this, we're on the edge now when you walk in these trees, it's pretty good bet. Live by the river, you're gonna get wet. Have I told you lately, you're the one I love? Look at this place, built together. Thunder rolls down from high above. The water can't take it away forever. It's gonna take wind, gonna go deep. You and me together, there's no denying. Pull our life up out of this creek Build it up after the flood Cause it's the life we love All that water See it when I close my eyes Now's the time Baby got a mind to try I found the picture Put on a rock to dry if you walk away, you ain't gonna listen to what they say. Think a man knows what we ought to do. Neighbors telling us we better face the truth. Saying too much damage, really nothing to do. But I'm not ready to go, are you? No, we're not ready to go just yet. I look in the face, I find the answer. I love to see you, baby, when your mind is set. There'll be a garden. To the flood, cause this life we love all that water that's over the bridge, it's got me worried. How we're gonna get through this? We're on the edge 
pretty good bet. Live by the river, man, you're gonna get wet. But we built our dream, we'll never forget. The water's still rising, man, we're gonna get wet. Troubadour getting emotional. He's a good friend. He misses his good friend, Jan. And I was so proud to be able to play that terrific song, All That Water. I get all his songs on SoundCloud. I normally post them on my social media. He's a great songwriter and singer. Thank you, Troubadour. Thank you, Mark Randall, for giving me the definitive Mark Randall interview. Same thing with my buddy, Alan Hill. So good to know you, man. I can't believe we've been lawyers 40 years. And I finally got you into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I hope I get you back next Saturday. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.